Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and I am back today to put the finishing touches on spring football practice, wrap it up, put a nice little bow on it for you by recapping what we learned over the course of those 15 spring practices and review the questions still left to be answered as we enter the summer months and head towards fall camp. Yeah, I know, guys. I know we've had a lot of spring practice talk over the past month. But it is the only look at the football team that we get from January, I guess, until fall camp opens in in late July, early August. So, yeah, we're going to talk about it. This is a Georgia podcast. And, yeah, of course, we talk about other sports. I think that we do a better job on this podcast of covering other Georgia sports outside the world of football than anyone else out there. I love all the Georgia programs, and I take pride in covering as many of them as I can on this podcast. But the reality is Georgia football drives this athletic department. It drives this fan base. I am under no illusions. I understand that and I'm all about that. I love the other sports, but football is my number one passion, has been my entire life. So yeah, when I get a chance to talk football in this podcast, Georgia football specifically, we're going to do it. And to be quite honest with you, I'm never going to apologize for that. I'm never going to apologize about discussing Georgia football on this show. So yeah, we're going to talk some football today. We're going to wrap things up when it comes to spring practice. But before we get to that, I do, speaking of other sports, want to give some love to some other programs on campus, some of the spring sports, and recap what went down over the weekend on the diamond and on the tennis courts. Let's start with the baseball team, guys. I know there's more interest there than tennis. I love tennis, but I understand baseball is a more popular sport, especially in this fan base. It was a great weekend. We took two out of three, won the series in Tuscaloosa against the Crimson Tide. I was hoping we would go for the sweep. We took the first two, 4-2 and 3-0. And I was hoping that Liam Sullivan, who came into the season as our number two starter, got pushed to Sunday, he dealt with some injuries, so he's pitching Sunday right now. I thought we had a really good chance. I like the guy who's our number two starter coming to the season against whoever Alabama's number three starter was. And he pitched well. Sullivan pitched really well. Only gave up three runs, but the bats just went quiet. Really all weekend, this team has been led by our offense, by the bats all season long, which is quite the reversal from previous years under Scott Strickland, where we were 
all about the pitching and defense, and we did just enough of the plate to win baseball games. This year, not so much. I mean, guys, in SEC play, our team ERA is in the eights. No, I, I, I did not misspeak there. In the eights. You know, comparing it to football, this is a crazy stat. I saw this over the weekend. I just I got to bring it on here. It's crazy. During the regular season, our defense on the football team did not give up more than 17 points in any single game in the regular season. Guys, our baseball team has already surpassed that number twice in SEC play. We've given up more than 20 runs twice, both on Sundays, on getaway days where we basically just ran out of pitching. But that's where we are right now. Our bullpen is having issues right now. And its I don't want to put it all on those guys. Look, we, we had some injuries in the starting rotation. Our number our number three starter coming this season, our, our number four starter, so our midweek guy and our Sunday pitcher, they're both out for the year. They're both gone. So what does that mean? That means we've got to take our top guys from the bullpen, like a guy like Nolan Crisp, who's really come on late and been great for us, and put them, thrust them into the starting rotation. And Chris has done a good job recently. He had a great start against Alabama. He went over five, I think five and two-thirds in, I want to say, on Friday night in route to a 4-2 victory, which was huge. Like when you have a guy that was gonna be a relief pitcher coming the season, go five and two-thirds on Friday night and steal a win from Alabama from your opponent when they've got their number one pitcher on the mound you feel like you've absolutely gone in there and you've stolen one. And you're doing that all on the road. So to get that victory to open up this series was a huge sigh of relief. But again, the reality is we've had to thrust some of these top relief pitchers into the starting rotation at times. And that has really stretched our bullpen. We don't have a ton of quality depth in the bullpen. Some guys, some young guys starting to step up. A guy like Chandler Marsh, who's a freshman, really starting to come on. But the bullpen um, has had some issues. We've had some issues. But, but... John Cannon, our ace, made his return after a two-week absence. His injury wasn't anything overly serious. It was like a forearm strain, essentially. But he did miss two starts, missed a start last week against AM. I feel confident. I mean, we lost that series uh, two out of three to AM. If Cannon was pitching, I feel like we probably could have taken two out of three from AM, but he wasn't. He comes back, and then he was literally perfect on Saturday afternoon against Alabama. He went five innings. Six strikeouts, zero walks, zero hits allowed on, was like a little over 60 pitches, I think. And yeah, we took him out of the game because he was on a pitch count. And right now, we want to make sure he's healthy for the postseason run because that's what we've done, guys. We've put ourselves in a fantastic position to host a regional. It's not a done deal yet. We have a murderer's row ahead of us here the last couple series of the season. We're heading to LSU this weekend. Then we are hosting Vanderbilt. We'll follow that up with a trip to Knoxville to take on the number one team in the country, the Tennessee Volunteers, who might have the best college baseball team in recent memory right now. I mean, I think they've lost three games all year. I believe they've lost one game in the SEC. Yeah, two weeks ago, Alabama beat them on a Friday night. But Tennessee has been nearly flawless all season long, especially in SEC play. And then we wrap things up at home against Missouri, who's not very good. They're in the bottom of the SEC East. But that's three weekends in a row, guys. At LSU, Vandy at home, and then at Tennessee, we have three really tough series. And so it was really, really important for us to get this series at Alabama. I was hoping for a sweep because I know what we have ahead of us, but still getting two out of three on the road is fantastic. It's really tough to sweep anybody on the road. In Alabama, 
They weren't ranked this week, but last week they were ranked number 24. They snuck into the rankings. They're a good, solid team. They're a good, solid team in the SEC. Not an elite team, but a good, solid team. But we put ourselves in fantastic position right now to host a regional. We still have an outside shot at getting inside the top eight, which would give us the opportunity to host a super regional if we can, oh, I don't know, find a way to actually get through a regional, which we have not done yet under Scott Strickland. But that's going to take some serious heavy lifting. Like We're going to have to really, really finish strong and probably take, I mean, honestly, to get inside the top eight, we might need to win each of these next three series. You know, I'm not saying sweep, but win two out of three against LSU, Vandy, and Tennessee, honestly. And uh, that's 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 asking a lot, especially when you got Tennessee on the road there. That's going to be asking a lot. But again, bottom line is this baseball team is having a heck of a season. We faced a ton of adversity. We fought through. I mean, it's it's miraculous where we are right now, where we're sitting here third in the SEC overall, second in the SEC East behind Tennessee, again, in line to host a regional, when we've had two of our top four pitchers go out for the season. Jonathan Cannon, our ace, a guy who's going to be a, a first-round draft pick, he missed the last two starts. Liam Sullivan, our number two pitcher of the season, missed essentially a month. I want to say it was four starts. I think it was a month that he missed in the middle of the SEC slate. He's back now. So when you factor in all of that, and Cole Tate, our starting shortstop, was one of the best hitters on the team until he got a stretch fracture in his lower extremities. Was it his foot, I want to say? But he's been out for a couple of weeks. He probably looks like he's going to be slated to come back late in the regular season. He might get him back for the last series or two. But with all those injuries, all that adversity, to be sitting where we are right now at this point in the season at 28 and 12 and 11 and 7 in the SEC, that is one hell of a coaching job by Scott Strickland. We've been piecing things together and it's been it's been tough to watch sometimes. You know, we a couple of weeks ago we beat Kennesaw State, which was actually a really good RPI win. We beat them 17 to 15. It, it was just like nobody could get anyone out. It was terrible. We're walking a ton of batters. It's it's out of control right now. It, this weekend was really encouraging, though, because over the entire weekend against Alabama, we only gave up five earned runs. Now, we only scored seven, which has been abnormal because, again, our, our bats have been what's carried this team. But only giving up five runs against a good quality SEC team, that's a major step in the right direction. And hopefully that's a sign of things to come with some of these young guys in the bullpen getting kind of more more comfortable in their role and kind of figuring things out. So I'm excited. I, I, I'm watching every game. Unfortunately, every game is on TV. But if you've got ESPN Plus, you can stream it. I look forward to watching every single game. That's not always been the case. It wasn't the case last year. We dealt with a lot of injuries last year. And uh, we did not end up making a regional last year. We did not make the insulate tournament. But again, we are in fantastic position to make a return to the postseason. And hopefully, if we don't just fall off the face of the earth, host a regional here in about a month or so. So great stuff on the diamond. Let's move over to the tennis courts. We talked last week, an entire episode, a bonus episode on the men's and women's SEC tennis tournaments. The men's tournament was held here in the Classic City. It was amazing to have postseason tennis back in Athens, the mecca of college tennis. Unfortunately, though, the guys fell short in the quarterfinal matchup against Tennessee. The crowd was there. We were pumped up. We were ready to go. We were making noise. But unfortunately, the guys just did not bring their A game on Friday against Tennessee. And look, Tennessee is really good. That's my takeaway from that match is, I mean, our guys did not bring their A game, We especially in doubles. We did not play particularly well. We did not play up to our capabilities. But Tennessee right now, as much as I hate to say this, as much as it pains me to say, the Tennessee tennis program right now is just better than our program is right now. And that's 
and I'm not trying to take shots at anybody. I, I love our team. I love our coaching staff. But right now, Tennessee's got two elite players on court. When they have two top 10 players in the country, and Adam Walton and Johannes Monday. I mean, Monday might be the best player I've seen all year. That guy, is, he's plays court too. It's ridiculous. He's fantastic. Tall, long, incredible serve, great pace, can hit every shot, moves extraordinarily well, plays great defense with that length. Just a really, really tough player to handle. So they're really good, and they were better than us last year. They beat us twice. They beat us in the NCAA tournament and ended our season in the Elite Eight. We beat them in Knoxville earlier this season, but Johannes Monday, who, again, I think is their best player, did not play in that match. So all of their players, three through six in singles, had to move up a court, and that certainly changed things for them. And credit to our guys who played really well in that match, and we, we were able to win, which is great. But when Tennessee's fully healthy this season, Again, I hate to say it, but they're just they're just better than us. They, they right now they are just better. We are still very very good, but we're just not quite on that level right now. Now, if we play our A game, we can still beat pretty much anybody in the country on any given day in, in any given match. If we play our A game, and if some of those top teams might be like a, you know just have a, an off day here or there, but we're not quite at that elite level. Like we're like the next tier right now, which is frustrating as we've always been really like the cream of the crop in the SEC. We are the blue blood tennis program in the SEC, one of the few in the entire country. And right now there's some other programs that have put some focus into tennis, that have put some money into tennis, hired some really good coaches. They're recruiting really well and they are challenging us right now. The future is incredibly bright. I am not down this program. I'm just realistic about where we are right now. The entire class of 2018, Phil Henning, Trent Bry, Blake Croyder, they are coming back next year. They would have been gone this year. They're using their COVID year. So that's huge for this team. What we have to do next year is find an answer on court one. We had a grad transfer come in. Hamish Stewart from Tulane has played at a really high level on that court for us this season. He did not have his best match, whether singles or doubles, on Friday, but he still gives us a really good chance. I think he's the best singles player that we've had since are the best number court one singles player, which in effect would be mean our top singles player since John Isner. I mean, that, that's how highly I think of Hamish Stewart, but he's going to be gone. He was a grad transfer. He's used his extra year of eligibility. He's gone. We've got to find an answer on court one. We have a player from California, Ethan Quinn, who's an early enrollee. He's on the team right now. He's in Athens, but he has not played. He has played at a really high level in a lot of pro tournaments and beaten some really, really, really good players that I have a lot of respect for. I think he will have a shot to do that next year, but he's going to be really young. Thomas Paulsell is a guy I really like. He played in court six. Actually, won. he was the only match that we won against Tennessee on on Friday. Now, we didn't finish all the matches. Now, we might have won a couple more. The way it works, though, is the first team we get to four points wins, and everyone else just stops at that point. But we we lost 4-1. Paulsell won on court six, which has been a struggle for us. We have been, we've been inconsistent on court six. He played a fantastic match, made quick work of his opponent. So I'm really high on him. Miguel Perez Payne, who's also played on court six for us a lot this year, high on him. So I think we have a very bright future. I think next year we'll actually, I think we'll be better than we were this year. I, I do. I think we'll be better. We got a couple of transfers coming in as well. We got a guy coming in from Clemson who's a really good player. So I, I, I'm excited about the future of this program. But right now, in the short term, this season, the rest of the way, going into the postseason, we have a puncher's chance to beat anybody in any given match. Just like last year, we beat North Carolina, who I think was maybe the most talented team in the country, certainly one of them outside of maybe Florida, who ended up winning the national title. So we can beat a team like that. We beat them last year in the Sweet 16, and we can do that again this year. I just don't know if we have what it takes to do that consistently enough to win a national title. And I hate to say that, but I, I just, trying to, just trying to be objective. And I think that's where we are right now. Now, on the other side... The women's team had a hell of a weekend. We fell just short 
against AM in the finals, but getting there was an accomplishment in its own right. This team has been fantastic all year long. We have a nice mix of veterans who have played a lot of tennis for us and some really young, talented players on this roster right now. Unfortunately, our number one singles player, sophomore Leah Ma, missed the entire weekend. I noticed in our last homestand two weeks ago that she looked like she had a couple injuries. Her groin looked like it was wrapped up. She had dealt with a groin injury all last year. It hasn't been wrapped up all year, but it was wrapped up again in that last homestand. And it looked like her ankle was also wrapped. She wasn't moving especially well that weekend. And then uh, she didn't, I think she played one match, not the second match in the last weekend of the regular season on our road trip to, uh, to Alabama and Auburn. And then this weekend, this past weekend in the SEC tournament, she didn't play at all. So that means everybody had to move up a court. So our number two singles player was playing our opponent's number one. Our number two, our number three singles player was playing our opponent's number two singles player, so on and so forth, right? Which puts you behind the eight ball from the get-go. But these girls fought with everything they had. And I admire them so much. I love this team. They have so much fight in them. We lost the doubles point in every single match over the weekend which means that you head into singles down one nothing, And all the opponent has to do is beat you in three out of six singles matches and you're out. They win. So we had to go into singles, win four out of six singles matches, and we did it. We did it in the first two matches against South Carolina and then against Tennessee. But A&M is just, they're really good this year, guys. They're really, really good. They've beaten us 4-0 both times that we played them. Now this match, I do think we would end up winning a couple of these matches if all of them were played out. Anya Hurdle was playing well. She'd won the second set after dropping the first. Mel Riasco, who was forced into duty at court one, dominated the first set and was about to close out in the second set. I believe she was actually serving for the second set and got broken and up dropping the second set. But I still think that she was rolling and she was going to be able to win that third set. That's me projecting. I don't know, but I I believe my heart of hearts that she was going to win that match. So I know it looks bad 0-4-0, but again, that was without our number one singles player. Everybody playing up a court, and we would have won a couple of those matches. But A&M's just really good, guys. And we beat them. For, we actually shut them out last year in the SEC Tournament Final 4-0. And this year, they returned the favor. But we were playing with three true freshmen in the lineup. They have a really strong veteran lineup. And they're just good. They're just good. They're better than us this year. And that's what it is. We're capable of beating them if we're fully healthy and we play a fantastic match. But... We were, we were running on fumes, and we weren't fully healthy, and got to give A&M credit. They're a really good team, and, and they just beat us. They just beat us on Sunday, and it is what it is. But I took a lot out of this weekend. Mel Riasco, in my mind, became a star. I, I already love Mel. She's so much fun to watch play, and she has this really like just happy-go-lucky kind of bubbly personality. She's just Again, I don't know these, these players, but I get there early. I watch them interact with each other and just watch them on the court. And she just seems like a player everyone gravitates to, just the kind of the kind of teammates you would want to have. And she's always been really talented. She needed to diversify her game early in the season, and she's done that. She just wanted to sit back and just hit ground strokes on the baseline. But she's really diversified her game, and she took her game to another level over the weekend. Guys, she beat the number one, play, the number five player in the country on Friday when we played South Carolina. That is no easy task. A girl who's played court two and court three all year being asked to play court one in a do-or-die match, and she comes up with a victory over the number five player in the country. Now, Mel is really good. She's been great all year. She's ranked inside the top 25 herself. I think she's number 24 right now. But Mel showed me that she can be an absolute star for this program. Now, with the absence of Katarina Jokic this year, Leah Moss played court one, and Leah is insanely talented in her own right. But we've been searching to find someone that's dominant like Cal, and Leah's been really good, but she hasn't been cat-level dominant. 
This weekend, Mel was cat level dominant, right? She's a different kind of player than Katarina was, but I've been looking for someone to play like that on court one all year long, and she was feeling it on Sunday. Hopefully some of you guys get to take that match in on SEC Network. So I'm really excited about her. Dasha Vivanova came back from injury. She still wasn't moving 100%, but she played well. She fought hard. She lost a match to a girl who was undefeated in SEC play. This year, actually, I think she's undefeated in dual match play and singles match play all season. So no shame there. That girl's a, a graduate senior, so she's a fifth-year player. Dasha's a, a true freshman, early enrollee, got to campus in January and still pushed her. And Dasha's future is limitless too. I mean, she's got court one. Basically, on the women's side, we have three players I think that have court one potential. We have Leah Ma, who's played there all year. Mel showed me that she could do it this this past weekend. And I think Dasha has that ability as well. So I think we are in fantastic shape on the women's side moving into the postseason. I think we can make some noise in the postseason this year. Do we have the best team in the country? Probably not. There are some really good teams, especially in the ACC. Uh, Texas is back. They won the national title last year, and they bounced back and beat Oklahoma after falling to them two times earlier in the year. So there are some really, really talented teams. But the near future for this team, like as early as next year, national championship good, 100%. And it's not out of the question that we can do that this year if we get on a roll, if we get everyone back healthy. But I think next year and the year after, we're going to be even better. So I'm extraordinarily excited about the, the future of this women's program and the men's program as well. But now we wait till next Monday to find out the official draws for the NCAA tournament. I'm you don't you never know for sure for sure, but there's a strong likelihood that both teams will finish in the top 16 in the final rankings, which means we will host the first and second round of the NCAA tournament, not this weekend, but next weekend. But we'll have that covered for you guys next week. But there you go. There's a quick little recap of what went on over the weekend on the spring sports side of things. Also throw some of the softball program. I know we don't talk a ton of softball, but they lost two out of three. They had a really good season under a new coach. Lost two out of three, though, unfortunately, to LSU over the weekend. The last game on Sunday went to nine innings, ended up losing that game, but still having a really good season uh, with the softball program heading into the, the postseason here shortly with softball, and hopefully they can put together a run once we get to the postseason as well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, so that was your spring sports recap from last weekend. But now let's get to the stuff I know you're all very anxiously awaiting. 
the college football talk. Let's put the finishing touches on spring practice by discussing what we learned and the questions that we still have. And let's open with the things that we learned. Now, this is my take on what I learned. So when I say we, I guess it's really what I learned. But I had a lot of questions entering spring practice. We covered some of those entering spring practice a month or so ago. And as far as I'm concerned, I think a number of those questions were answered over the course of those 15 spring practices. So I've got five things that I learned this spring and five questions I still have about this team heading into the 2022 season. And to open with what we learned, what I learned, number one on my list here, Stetson Bennett is QB1. Case closed. That's that's where we are right now. Now, we had some questions early on the first week or so. We were hearing some word. I, I got direct word from people who were at practice that both Carson Beck and Brock Vandegrift were getting a lot of reps, extensive reps with the number one offense while Stetson was taking a lot of reps with the threes. And we talked about that on this podcast. And we were like, huh, what's, what's going on here? We had some speculation going on. Is it really an open competition? Is it more open than we thought? What's going on? Are those guys just taking the next step? Is Stetson really falling back? Or is this just the coach trying to find out what we have in our backup guys and getting one of those guys ready in case, God forbid, something happens to Stetson Bennett? And clearly, as spring went on, the answer was, that we were just trying to get somebody ready to back up Stetson Bennett. Because Stetson Bennett in both of the scrimmages got 90 plus percent of the reps, the ones, at least that's what I was told. And then we all saw G-Day, he went out there with the number one offense and he was clearly the number one quarterback. Honestly, that should not be surprising considering that, oh yeah, he did just lead us to a national championship. But I know there are a lot of people out there, Curtis included, you know, as the president of the Stetson Bennett Hater Club, that are still convinced that Stetson Bennett can't do it for an entire year, absent a great defense. If, if our offense has to be more of a driving force behind our team, that Stetson Bennett doesn't have the talent, the ability to do that. So therefore, we are desperately in need of one of either Carson Beck or Brock Vandegrift to step up, be ready, take the next step, and be that guy because they're just more talented. They're going to be the ones who can lead us to better offensive numbers, which we're going to have to have in order to compensate for a defense that will still be good, but not as good as a defense that we had last year that was historic level dominant, right? We know the narrative. We know what Curtis says. We know what the people who, who follow Curtis's line of thinking, we know what they say, what they think. But through what we saw in spring practice, Stetson Bennett, regardless of what they say, what they think, is the number one quarterback. And I just simply do not see that changing. I do not see that changing right now. Stetson had a really good spring practice from everything I was told, everything that we heard. G-Day, you know, he, he forced some balls at times, but when you're throwing the ball 90% of the time and you don't have a running game to lean on, that's going to happen because the defense just sits back and they know what's coming. And look, we all understand that the offense operates better with Stetson when we have the threat of play action and we're able to roll him out of the pocket, do things like that. I mean, we, we've seen that when he's had to throw the ball 40, 50 times, it doesn't work out particularly well. And it's not so much a Stetson thing. It's just our offense is not really built to do that. So G-Day, I'm not worried about you know, the interceptions, some of the forced throws from all returns that we get, that I got from spring practice and Stetson's really started to take the next step now that he's gone into an actual spring practice as the number one quarterback, as the guy. And I, for one, am okay with that. In fact, I'm excited about what Stetson can do coming back with a full offseason under his belt as the guy. I think Stetson Bennett can take a big step forward this year, just like he did from 2020 to 2021. And you know what? Let's stick with the quarterback position for the second thing on my list of things that I learned during the course of spring practice. And that is that Carson Beck 
as far as I'm concerned, is the clear QB2. If Stetson Bennett's number one, I think Carson Beck has positioned himself going into the summer as the clear backup to Stetson Bennett. Now, that was also the case this time last year. Remember, there was a lot of talk last offseason about how Carson Beck had made a move. He was the number two guy. We get in the season. JT Daniels goes down. But then our number two quarterback, who had been identified by the head man Kirby Smart himself as number two, which is very un-Kirby Smart-esque. He's typically very tight-lipped about those kind of things. But even Kirby early in the season said, yeah, Carson's our number two. No problem. Very casually said that. Put that out there in the media. And then JT goes down. And then he goes with the ultimate security blanket. He goes with the guy that he had more trust in because he had seen it. He had verifiable evidence that Stetson Bennett could go out there and win SEC games. So Stetson leapfrogs Carson all the way to become QB1, and the rest is history. We all know how that played out. You don't need me to recap that for you. But at this point, I truly do believe that Carson Beck, in the absence of a Stetson Bennett as a backup, Stetson's not the starter. We don't have that security blanket like we had last year. With Stetson now as a starter, I think Carson is clearly the number two guy. If, again, God forbid, something happened to Stetson, there's an injury along the way, I think Carson is going to get the first shot as the guy to come in and fill in for Stetson Bennett. And I know a lot of you out there are probably sitting there saying to yourself, how do you know that, Tyler? Like, what makes you think that Carson Beck is the clear number two? And there's a couple things. It's not just what happened at G-Day. It's not just how Carson looked, how Brock looked. I thought they both had good moments. They both had some things they clearly still need to clean up and get better at. But this is in totality of what, yes, I did see with my own two eyes at G-Day, but also what I was told, what people that would know told me coming out of spring practice. And the word I was getting really all through those 15 spring practices, which was, yes, Brock Vandegrift has closed the gap. He's doing things better than he was doing last year. He's operating at a higher level than he was last year. He's more comfortable in the offense. He understands the playbook more. He's just more advanced than he was as a true freshman last year. And he's a talented quarterback. He does have that mobility, which Carson is mobile, but not to the level that Brock Vandegrift is. So that's an added element to his game, which we do know that the coaches love. So there's that for Brock. But While Brock did make strides, clear strides, significant strides this offseason and through spring practice, Carson himself also made those strides as well. And combine that with the fact that he was already ahead of Brock based on his time in the program, a little bit more experience, more time with, with Coach Munkin. That all adds up to mean that Carson Beck is still clearly ahead of Brock Vandegrift. Now, that's where we are right now. We still have the entire summer. We have fall camp to go through. Brock Vandegrift continues to make strides. And if that process continues, it's certainly within the realm of possibility that Brock Vandegrift could make a run at that QB2 spot. That is absolutely a possibility. I'm not going to sit here and close the door on that potentially happening. But where we sit right now, coming out of spring practice, one thing that I learned is that right now, Carson Beck is the clear number two option as Stetson Bennett. And he is a number two. He's he's made strides, but so is Stetson. It's kind of like how Beck was already ahead of, of Vandegrift. Therefore, they both make strides. He's still going to stay ahead because he just had a year of experience on him, a year more in the program. Same thing with Stetson. Even though Beck behind him has improved and taken, a ne- taken the next step, Stetson himself, who was already ahead of Carson, has done the same thing, taken another step. He's the guy actually getting reps in the spring with the number one offense, being that guy in the offseason. So he's clearly ahead of Carson Beck. 
So to me, the pecking order is pretty clear right now. You have Stetson Bennett as QB1, Carson Beck as the clear backup, number two option. Brock Vandegrift right behind him, nipping on his heels, sure, but I think a, a clear number three option. And then you have Gunnar Stockton, who's just brand new to the program, his head spinning right now as the number four guy who won't factor into the conversation this season, but going into 2023, he'll certainly have a shot to be a major factor in that competition. His time, however, just doesn't happen to be right now. All right, moving on with the list here of things that I learned through the course of spring practice. I've said this before. I'm going to double down on it. I think I said this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Arik Gilbert. We might have mentioned it in our G-Day recap episode, but I will double down on this right now. One thing that I learned is that the University of Georgia has the best tight end room in the history of college football, with the caveat being if they all stay here in Athens, which it looks like right now. I mean, the deadline to enter the transfer portal is May 1st, so they have a week. I know Darnell Washington at times, that's something that he was considering. I I know that. I have that on very good authority that the coaching staff, that's one of the things they had to talk with him about after this season. They met with him, talked with him, and at that time, he decided to stay and kind of played out and see what happened, but it was always kind of touch and go as far as I I was concerned. Like, hey, at any moment, he could just decide that, boom, I'm out of here, and I was slightly concerned, I'm not going to lie, with the emergence of Arik Gilbert, which was fantastic news because that's another weapon for us, another playmaker for us. But when all that news started to come out and I started getting reports that Gilbert was was tearing it up in practice, my mind instantly went to, oh no, what does that mean for Darnell Washington? Is he going to start wondering where he fits into this now? But the last word I got on that, and this is always subject to change, again, only has a week to change, but still, I guess technically it could change, but that Darnell Washington, as of right now, is planning to stick it out and give it a go through this season, and the coaching staff has articulated a clear vision and plan for him that he is buying into. So let's kind of tally up the riches that we have in this tight end room. We know what we have in Brock Bowers, the single greatest season for a tight end in Georgia football history, which is saying something when you consider the number of high-level tight ends that we've had, even like the recent past, the single greatest season in Georgia football history for a tight end and did that as a true freshman. That guy is back. That's about as good of a place as you could possibly start. Then you have Darnell Washington going to his third year. Hopefully he can get back healthy heading into the summer, heading into fall camp. And if he is, I do believe that you could see Darnell Washington, in addition to being an outstanding blocker on the perimeter, also start to make more of an impact in the passing game. Is he the same kind of athlete that Brock Bowers is? No. Now for his size, he's a fantastic athlete, but it's the size that makes him a matchup problem. And as many people have pointed out through the past year or so, an absolute red zone matchup nightmare for opponents that I don't think that we've really truly activated to the degree that I think that we can and that we should. So I'm excited if he can get back healthy, get over some of these foot injuries, which is tough for a big guy that has that much weight to throw around when he's running around. If he can get healthy, I think he can begin to emerge as another weapon for us in the passing game, a pass game that I do think will be more potent this 2022 football season. So just those two returning tight ends would honestly probably give us the best tight end room in the country this year. Now, does that make it an all-time tight end room? Probably not in of itself, maybe up there, but probably not the greatest of all time. But then you throw in a former Gatorade All-American Player of the Year as a senior in high school who was a freshman, all-SEC player as a true freshman, 
at LSU, obviously took the year off last year, so there was some rust to be concerned about and to knock off. He came back to the program in January at about 300-ish pounds and has knocked that down to about 265, 270, I was told most recently. So when you add a player of that caliber to the mix, who made waves essentially from the get-go during spring practice, caught two touchdowns at G-Day, you throw a guy with that pedigree of that caliber into the mix, and then yeah, now you can start getting into the conversation of greatest tight end room in college football history. And But we're not done yet. Then you take a top 100 recruit in Oscar Delp, you throw him into the mix as your number four tight end, a guy that in my opinion has Brock Bowers level athleticism at that position who is already a threat in the passing game if we were to throw him out there and throw balls to him. Now he's got to get more competent as a blocker, get more familiar with the system, all the things that Brock had to deal with last year. But you throw that guy in the mix as your number four guy, case closed. I mean, absolutely case closed. And you can even throw, what the heck, for fun, throw in Brett Seether, who's a guy that I think in a lot of other programs in the SEC would be a starter. But he's number five for us. He's going to have a tough time seeing the field, not because he's not good, not because he couldn't contribute if he was asked to, but just the sheer fact that there are so many playmakers ahead of him right now. So to me, that all adds up to the greatest tight end room in the history of college football. I don't know if I would have said that coming into spring practice. Now, what I've learned is that not only is that a reasonable conversation to have, I think I'm ready to die on that hill. And I know we haven't kicked off any games yet, but at this point, just on paper, I don't even know if there's an argument against that at this point. That's where I am with that. Okay, a couple more things I've learned here. Next up, let's go to the defensive side of the ball. We talked about offense, these first three things I've learned. Let's go to defense for a second here. And I feel very confident right now. We've talked about this a couple times, but I'll bring it up here again. Obviously, we all know that we are losing some generational level talent on our defense. And I don't use that word generational. I don't use that word lightly. I mean it when I say generational talent. Guys like Jordan Davis, that size, that level of of athleticism, they don't come around very often. We're not going to replace a guy like that. N'Kobe Dean, Quay Walker, of course, Trayvon Walker, who now, I think last I saw, has now become the betting favorite to be the number one overall draft pick in the NFL draft later this week, which we will be previewing later on this week, by the way. Just a little tease there for you. But all those guys, I mean, we're talking about generational level players, especially talking about Trayvon Walker, Jordan Davis, Nicobe Dean. These are some of the best players to ever play for Georgia on the defensive side of the ball. And so we all knew that it was going to be difficult to find answers to replace those guys. But what spring was about is starting to find some answers to who those guys are going to be. In one of the positions where I felt it was very wide open, maybe the most wide open battle of, of, of them all in the entire team, offense or defense, coming into spring practice, was inside linebacker. But there was one player who emerged above all others this spring at that position, and that's Pop Jamon Dumas Johnson, JDJ, Pop, whatever you want to call him. I feel very confident right now, and not just penciling in Pop as a starter at inside linebacker. I'm going to go ahead and write his name in with Penn as a starter at inside linebacker and not the erasable kind of ink either. I'm talking hardcore old school ink, right? Go ahead, write his name down with Penn in ink as a starter at inside linebacker. We had a lot of injuries at that position before spring, during spring, but Pop was the one constant. And it's not just during spring that we've heard talk about this guy. Go back to last season. 
you know, when I would ask people, like, like, who are some of the young guys, you know, that might not be ready to contribute right now, they're not really getting a lot of playing time, but might be a guy to watch for next year. And Pop was a name that I heard pretty consistently last season, a guy who was making a lot of strides. We saw that in, in, in really small sample sizes, but when he got opportunities, he was a guy that made plays. He had a pick six last year. So he was certainly a name that I was excited to watch develop through spring practice. And that's why I was not overwhelmingly surprised when really right off the bat, kind of like Gilbert on the offensive side of the ball, was not surprised at all when I heard very quickly that he was a guy that was standing out at practice and was working with the ones and just never really relented, never really relinquished that spot. And when you have so many injuries at that position, he got an increased number of reps, which helps his development and just really further solidifies him in that position as the kind of the one constant there during the spring. Now, I do still have some questions based off what I saw from him during G-Day. I have some questions about his ability to be a true three-down linebacker like N'Kobe Dean was for us. I think I said last week, I think he's more in the vein of a Monty Rice, which is not an insult, just a comparison. Monty was a fantastic player and a fantastic leader for us, and he was fantastic between the tackles. But operating in space, it wasn't that Monty couldn't move. Monty was plenty fast enough, but he was never super comfortable in coverage. That was not his forte. He was better as a downhill linebacker. And I think based off what I've seen to this point, I feel like Pop, and it's again, very small sample size. I'm not sitting here and making a definitive statement because I haven't seen enough. But what based off what I have seen, if I had to project right now, I see him more as the Monty Rice first and second down inside linebacker as opposed to N'Kobe Dean true three down inside linebacker. But regardless, during the spring, he clearly emerged as one of the answers at a position where we needed to find answers. And I'm very excited to continue to see him develop as we get into the 2022 football season. All right, guys, last one here before we move on to the lingering questions coming out of spring practice. The last thing I learned, and this is another one where I'm going to kind of double down, triple down. I've said this a million times, but I truly believe this. I think that I learned... It's something I had a sneaking suspicion about that I felt pretty good about coming into spring practice, and the spring kind of reaffirmed it for me, that this offense, not only do I think it's going to be the best offense of the Kirby Smart era, I, I think that's a no-brainer right now, but I believe this has a significant chance. And you know what? Screw it. I'm not going to say significant chance. I'm not going to qualify it. I'm going to go ahead and say it straight up. This is going to be the best offense in Georgia history from a production standpoint. Regardless of what you think about Stetson Bennett, he is a returning starter who led us to a national championship. We have not been able to say that in 41 freaking years, guys, all right? Is he Aaron Murray? Is he Matthew Stafford? Is he a DJ Shockley-level talent? Is he even an Eric Zire-level talent? The answer is unequivocally no. He's not that kind of guy. But as a college quarterback, he has proven that he can lead an elite offense, and yes, I stand by what I said, an elite offense, despite all the narratives out there, and he has proven that he can make plays for us when we have to have it. He's absolutely done that. The pass to A.D. Mitchell to take the lead against Alabama in the national championship game, those drives in the fourth quarter to dominate Alabama, did he do that alone? No, of course not. But Stetson Bennett, despite whatever narrative you may subscribe to when it comes to him, you have to admit he was absolutely a big part of all of that success that we had in the fourth quarter to take control of and ultimately win the national championship game. And he did that without 
any reps. I'm, I'm dead serious, guys, without any reps through spring and fall camp with the number one offense. He was an afterthought. The coaches had moved on from him, right? Again, Carson Beck was the number two guy. That's where the focus was. It was JT, it was Carson. Stetson Bennett was a guy that was the fun story. He came in and helped us win a couple games in the SEC in 2020 when he was pressing to duty. But once we figured out that JT was our guy, we kind of just threw him in the trash heap. We forgot about that guy. But you know what? When we needed him, he was there for us. And he played at an extraordinarily high level without any sort of reps with the number one offense without anyone taking him seriously throughout the entire 2021 offseason. So that guy is back with a full offseason under his belt, being the guy, getting all those reps, continuing to improve, continuing to develop. We have yet to see the best version of Stetson Bennett. We're going to get that this year. And this is the guy that already took us to a national championship game. That guy's back. That's number one. Then you think about all the weapons he has to work with last year. Guys, it was a mash unit at wide receiver for us last year. This year, I mean, barring injuries, it's football. Things happen. But you got A.D. Mitchell coming back, right? A.D. Mitchell, I think, is about to just show out and become a top-level, true alpha number one receiver in the vein of George Pickens. Now, he might not get as many opportunities because we have so many tight ends, as we talked about earlier in that tight end room, who are going to get a ton of balls thrown their way. And the fact that we have so many tight ends is going to make us extraordinarily difficult for defenses to match up with. We've talked about this several times in the show, but I'll reiterate it for anyone who might have missed this. When you have tight ends of that caliber, that many of them, you can operate in 13 and maybe even 14 personnel, which you don't see very often outside the goal line, but you know what? We have the guys, we have the horses to be able to do that. It creates all sorts of issues for defense. If you have guys like Brock Bowers and Arik Gilbert and Darnell Washington and Oscar Delp and Brett Seether, all these guys who can function effectively as inline blockers, but also can go out there and run pass routes with the best of them and be major weapons in the passing game, defenses are damned if they do, damned if they don't. What do they do? Do you go with heavy personnel to defend the run? Because we have th- when we have three tight ends on the field, if you sit there in your nickel package, we're going to run the ball down your throat. So what do you have to do? You have to make a choice. Do we sit there and let that happen and just go down the field and score on us, run the football down our throats? Or do we respond with heavier defensive personnel to take away the run? And when you do that, then you've got to match up with those tight ends in space, running routes, and they just can't do it. You simply cannot defend that effectively absent a ton of hybrid level defensive players. And those guys are just harder to find than than what you find on the offensive side of the ball. Defenses haven't really quite caught up with that yet. And then you throw the running backs in the equation. You've got guys like Kenny McIntosh, more so than Kendall Milton, who I think Kendall Milton's going to be a great downhill runner for us. Both of them can be effective weapons out of the backfield. But I think Kenny McIntosh might be the best receiving threat we've had in the backfield in recent memory. And I include James Cook in that. James Cook was fantastic as a receiver for us out of the backfield. I think Kenny McIntosh might have better receiving skills, be a more natural receiver that even James Cook was. We saw that at G-Day. We saw it last year at times. This guy is absolutely a weapon in the passing game. So if you've got three tight ends in the game, you're in 13 personnel. Well, you also, not only do the the bigger defenders have to deal with the tight ends, they also have to match up with a running back that is as effective in space as Kenny McIntosh is. Game over, lights out. And you pair that with what I think is going to be an improved offensive line, especially if we find an answer at right guard for Warren Erickson, who I've said many times, I just don't believe is the answer there. 
I think that our offensive line should be better. We got to find the answer at guard, but I think we're going to be better there. We're going to have some experience in that position, especially on the on the interior there with Cedric Van Pran now in his second year as a starter at center, which is a big deal because that's the leader of the offensive line. I think we got maybe a little bit more athletic with Broderick Jones at left tackle. So I'm excited about the offensive line if we can just figure out who those five guys are going to be. And then we have more weapons at receiver. Again, if we can stay healthy, I love what Lab McConkey brings to the table. Kiris Jackson coming back fully healthy. Arian Smith, all this guy does is make plays. There's not a player in the country that can st- that can defend him in a straight line. There's nobody on defense that can run with Arian Smith. This guy is a 10, 200 meter guy, potentially the fastest guy in college football, certainly up there. And if you let that guy just run a straight go route, there's no defender in college football that can stay with him. He hasn't got a chance to play much. He missed about six weeks with a bruise, but when he's out there, he's shown it time and time again that he is going to get open and he's going to make plays. Then Don Blaylock is back, full strength, ready to go. Jackson Meek starting to make some plays this this offseason, this spring. So the weapons that we have to work with are just greater and more potent than what we had last year. I think the offensive line will be improved. Stetson Bennett's going to be a year older, a year more experienced, a year better. All that, in my opinion, adds up to not just the greatest offense in the Kirby Smart era, but I what I believe will be the most productive offense in the history of Georgia football. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, guys, so those are the five things that I learned throughout the course of our 15 spring practices. But unfortunately, as is always the case, there are still some lingering questions coming out of spring drills. They're going to carry into the offseason and all the way through fall camp in the start of the 2022 season. When we open things up, we kick the season off in Atlanta against the Oregon Ducks. And I'm going to start on offense. The rest of these are going to be defensive things. But I'm going to start with one part of the offense that I still have questions about. Like I just went over, I feel very strong about pretty much every position on the offensive side of the ball, except for offensive guard. I think we have potential answers there. The problem is those answers did not definitively reveal themselves through the course of spring practice. We know that Warren Erickson was was starting to get passed up a little bit by Devin Willick as we approached about the midway point of spring practice. Willick started eating into his his reps with the number one offense. Then Erickson goes down with an injury, not a major injury, but a minor injury that at least put him out for the rest of spring. Willick got more opportunities, more reps. That's going to help his development. Xavier Trust got some opportunities at left guard to work with the ones. Did some good things, I was told, but I'm still not sold yet on him at left guard. And I'm open to the idea of Devin Willick being a better option than Warren Erickson. Again, just really based on sheer size and ability to get movement and push up front, which is something that we really struggled with last year. But I'm still not 100% sold that Willick is the answer there. Amarius Mims, 
decided to enter the transfer portal, then ultimately decided to come back, which I am very excited about. Will he factor in to the competition at offensive guard as we get into fall camp? There's a lot of questions there at that position, and I think that's a really critical spot for us. Again, if there's any position where there's any kind of lingering concern on the offense right now, I, I think it's guard. And I, I just don't have those concerns really anywhere else on our entire offense. So if we can find answers there, give us more push up front guys that we can trust in the run game and pass pro, then I feel really, really good about this offense. I already feel really, really good about this offense. But if we can just find answers there, I don't know if there's any question. I don't know if there's any slowing down this offense in 2022 if we can find those answers. But that still has to be determined as we go into the summer months and into fall camp here in a couple of months. My second question that I still have for this team, and I'm just going to throw them all in here. I was going to say cornerback, and I was going to do each position separately, but really at this point, our entire team is a backfield. I still have a lot of questions. So let's let's go over what I feel good about. Keely Ringo is going to start at boundary corner. Feel great about that. Chris Smith is going to start at one of the safety positions. Feel great about that. Outside of that, though, I think everything's up in the air. Dan Jackson spent most of the spring working with the ones. David Daniel got some opportunities there as well. But Dan Jackson and Chris Smith were the primary options with the one defense throughout the entire spring. And I love Dan Jackson. I think he's a very valuable player for us. Get this guy on scholarship right now. He's earned that. He deserves that. But I don't know if Dan Jackson is the answer for us as a full-time starter at safety. I'm open to the possibility of him winning that job. But I still think there's some opportunities for some other guys to factor into that conversation as the starter alongside Chris Smith. I mentioned David Daniel. I don't think the book is closed on him. I don't think that door is closed as he enters the summer months. And and it enters a a very important time of the year for him to continue to develop, continue to improve, and put himself in a great spot going to fall camp to really, really make a move for that spot. Tyke Smith, hopefully once we get back into the summer, will be full go. And he'll factor in that conversation as well. Malachi Starks is here as an early enrollee, but as a guy who's just new to campus, I mean, his head was spinning. That's natural. And I would like to see how he continues to develop throughout the the summer and into fall camp. But I would also say safety might be a position where we are going to be in the market to find somebody in the transfer portal. But it's kind of like receiver. We mentioned this last week in the mailbag. I don't think we're in a position of receiver to where we have to just take a body. I think we're looking for an impact player. And it's the same thing as safety. If we can look in the portal and we can find a guy that's an impact player that we believe can come in and be a starter or at least compete for a starting position right off the bat, like a Darion Kendrick at cornerback last year, then I think Kirby Smart would make that move. The problem is, at this point, who are those guys that haven't already found homes in the transfer portal? I don't know. I, I don't know. Again, we have about a week left until they have to actually enter the transfer portal. Maybe another name hits that we're looking at and that we want to bring in as, as a potential answer at, at safety. But right now, I just don't know who those guys are. And guys, this is not to say that I don't think Dan Jackson's a good player. Like I said, I put a lot of value in what Dan Jackson was able to do for our team last year. He answered the call time and time again when he was thrust into duty. Chris Smith missed a ton of playing time, a couple of games, and Dan Jackson filled in admirably for him. We didn't really miss much of a beat. So I think Dan Jackson can be a very competent player for us. He's Heck, he's shown that. Like I don't think that. I know that. We've seen that from him. There is evidence to that effect. My question with Dan Jackson is, does he have the top-level talent and athleticism to match up consistently with the best teams in the country? I don't know if the answer is yes as a full-time starter. 
I think he's a better player and a better athlete than most people want to give him credit for. But even I still have some concerns about him matching up with the best offenses in the country, having to cover in space. Now, there's some things that we can do to mitigate that and to kind of mask that. But ideally, you don't want to have to do that. You want your safeties to be guys that can defend against the run, that can cover in space effectively against against good receivers, against good tight ends, running backs, the like. And Dan Jackson's done a good job of that. But again, I just I don't know if he is the kind of player from a talent standpoint that you want to have to rely on to be like your full-time starter all throughout the season on a team that is going to be contending for a national championship. And I hope Dan proves me wrong there. And if he ends up beating out all those guys, then God bless him, man. Let's go Dan Jackson. But I still have questions there. Then cornerback opposite Keely Ringo at the field cornerback position. Obviously, that position is still wide open. Kamari Laster is the guy that was getting a lot of work with the one offense or the one defense, I should say, throughout spring practice, but he came down sick the night before G-Day, and we did not get a chance to see him. I heard good things, but I did not get to lay my own two eyes on him, which is frustrating. We saw William Poole, who played star for us to end last season in the national championship game, and really, I guess the SEC championship game, the Orange Bowl, and the national championship game the entire postseason. He had to move out to corner there. Javon Buller played inside at star with, with a number one defense. And I just don't know if that's how it's ultimately going to work out. Nyland Green, I thought, did some good things. We got opportunities out there. I heard some really positive reviews about Dalen Everett. I thought he looked good at GD. I thought he looked quick. I thought he looked aggressive. I thought he looked athletic. I think he's going to be a player for us here, maybe sooner rather than later. But there's just a lot of options. And that's not even mentioning the two big-time prospects that we have coming in at cornerback as part of this 2022 recruiting class, Jaheim Singletary and Julio Humphrey, those guys have not stepped foot on campus yet. They are extraordinarily talented players who are definitely going to get an opportunity to factor into this battle as well. So that position is still just wide open. I don't know if the answer is there. I guess Kamari Lassiter, based off his performance throughout spring practice, would be the, the slight favorite heading into the summer. But there has certainly been nothing decided there, and that position battle is going to be as wide open as ever once we hit fall camp here in a couple of months. And then the star position. I think William Poole is going to be the answer there, but with him moving out to cornerback, do the coaches, do the coaches like what they see there? Do they want to give him more of a look at actual cornerback? Does Javon Buller start to factor in that position? What about Tyke Smith? I know he's getting a lot of work at safety right now, and when he comes back full speed, we'll see if it's safety, is it star, is he cross-training? Because let's not forget, Tyke Smith was slated to be our, our starter at star coming to last season before his foot injury. So there's just a lot of options really all the way around, whether it's safety, cornerback, star. There are just not a lot of firm answers right now. And I guess that's okay. It's good to have the competition carry into the summer and into fall camp. It keeps guys motivated and, and keeps thinking they have a chance. But as we sit right now, we don't have answers there. There are still a lot of questions at cornerback, safety, and star. A lot of questions in the secondary. Okay, let's move on here for a second or two. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I'm going to touch on again as one of my questions coming out of spring practice, and that simply is how will we adjust schematically up front to account for the loss of Jordan Davis? I do think that we saw some positive things from a, from a couple of guys on the defensive line to give us room to hope that we won't have as dramatic of a drop-off on the defensive line as some people had anticipated with the loss of high-level players like, obviously, Jordan Davis, Devontae Wyatt, and Trayvon Walker, who will all three almost certainly go somewhere in their first round of the NFL draft later on this week. I think we found some answers. We knew that Jalen Carter was going to be that dude for us. Everyone knew that. No questions asked there. 
But to see guys like Tyrion Ingram Dawkins start to emerge as answers at that position. Now, he still hasn't played any meaningful snaps, but had a really good spring practice, did some good things during G-Day, looked really quick, has some positional versatility. Zion Logue stepping up into, into the position to become one of those guys. I thought Warren Brinson did some really good things. Now, are those guys Jordan Davis? No. I've been very open this offseason telling you guys, we don't have anyone on the roster that can do what Jordan Davis did. We don't have that guy. But that doesn't mean we don't have talented players. My question is not so much who are the guys that are going to contribute. I feel like we know that. It's going to be Jalen Carter. It's going to be Zion Logue. It's going to be Nas Stackhouse. It's going to be Warren Brinson. It's going to be Tyrion Ingram Dawkins. It's going to be Michael Williams at times. Tramel Walthour. All those guys are going to play a lot of snaps for us. We know who the names are going to be. My bigger question is, how are we going to deploy those guys? Clearly, we're not going to be able to do the things that we did with Jordan Davis with a big space here that's just going to eat up blocks, allowing linebackers to run free, control the run game with even numbers. We don't have that guy. We do not have that body on our roster right now. So what do we do? Do we move away from the two-gap stuff? Do we go to more one-gap penetrating type style defense? Do we utilize more even fronts, more bare fronts? I think the answer is going to be a little bit of yes to all of those. I think it's going to be a combination of things that we're going to have to do and mix things up, but I'm very anxious and curious to see how do we respond because we're just not going to be able to operate defensively in the front seven the way that we did last year without a guy like Jordan Davis. I I have an idea of what we're going to do, but I just don't know. I think the questions are still there. We saw maybe a taste of what you'll see this fall at G-Day, but we certainly didn't show the whole package clearly. I mean, we, we stunted and blitzed more than you would typically see at a spring game. But we didn't really get a ton of insight into exactly what we're going to do defensively up front with guys that are just, they're just built different than Jordan Davis and how we're going to adjust to that, not having a guy of that size and stature in the middle of our defense. Okay, a couple more here, guys, and I'll get out of here. The next question I still have coming out of spring practice relates to the inside linebackers. So one of the things that I learned was that Pop Dumas Johnson is going to be one of the starters at inside linebacker for us. Feel very strongly about that. One of the questions I still have, however, is who is going to be that starter beside Pop at inside linebacker? I think we're going to have a true four-man rotation again this year, which I think is what Kirby ultimately would like to have to keep those guys fresh, especially when you don't have anybody that has the experience of like a Nicobe Dean or a Quay Walker. But who is going to be that other starting inside linebacker? I still think that's TBD right now. I would put my money on Smile Mondin, who was working with Pop last year and did some really good things as well, was, was an important special teams player for us. Extraordinarily athletic, maybe the most athletic inside linebacker that we've had in recent memory. And that's saying something, guys. We're talking about Roquan Smith and Kobe Dean and Quay Walker and Shane Tindall. Smile might be more athletic than all those guys. Like, needs to continue to add weight, but he was also hurt during the spring wasn't a factor. That set back his development. It did not give him the opportunity to really establish himself as a firm starter beside Pop. I think if he was healthy, he would have done that, but he wasn't. And so that opened the door for some other guys. You saw Xavier Sori do some good things. Trezvan Marshall came back healthy and did some good things. Jalen Walker is a guy that I'm extraordinarily high on as a true freshman early enrollee. Had a really good spring from all accounts and was advanced for an early enrollee from what I was told. So there are some guys that are going to have opportunities. Ryan Davis, hopefully we back when we get to fall camp, who, I'm, who I still think can be a really good player. He just has been entirely unable to stay healthy. But there's just a lot of options there. And that battle will play out over the next couple of months. And I guess it will ultimately resolve itself 
as we get into fall camp before the 2022 season kicks off. But coming out of spring practice, I don't think we have an answer. I know it was Tresman Marshall who was starting. Somebody had to start next to Pop at G-Day, and it was Tresman Marshall. But I think that's a very tenuous hold on that position. Because what I was told was the scrim- at the scrimmage before that, it was actually Xavier Sori who was working with the ones. So that's a very tenuous hold that Tresman has on that position. And that battle is still very, very open as we enter the summer months. Which brings us to the final question I have for this team coming out of spring practice. And this is not so much an on-the-field thing, but it's still something that I put a lot of emphasis on. I put a premium on this. And I think last year was case in point. Every successful team has got to have strong internal player leadership. You have to be a player-led team. Kirby's huge on that. He's done a fantastic job of developing leaders his entire career here as our head coach. He does a great job of that. That's important to him. It's important to me. I think it's an underrated aspect of what makes a team a a truly great team, a, a national championship caliber team. There's a lot of teams that are really talented, but one of the things that can separate a, a very good, talented team from a great elite team can be that leadership inside your locker room. And guys, we lost a ton of leaders off that 2021 football team. We lose guys like N'Kobe Dean and Jamari Salyer and Jordan Davis and Lewis Seen and James Cook and Zamir White. And the list goes on and on and on. Those guys are gone. There was a leadership void coming into spring practice. And that's not unusual. It's the nature of college sports. Guys come in, guys develop into leaders as upperclassmen, and then they move on and someone has to fill that void. And I'm sure that we have the guys in the team. I just still don't know exactly who those guys are going to be, and they need to emerge sooner rather than later. I do think Nolan Smith has become that guy. He's a very well-respected player and a very vocal player who just has a fun-loving personality and just gets along with everybody. So I think Nolan Smith is going to be the answer to that on the defense side of the ball, but we need more than just Nolan, and we just don't have a ton of experience coming back on that side of the ball. Does Chris Smith jump into that role? Does Keely Ringo start to take on more of that leadership type role on defense. Jalen Carter, he's been a guy kind of in the shadows of Jordan Davis and Trevon Walker and Devontae Wyatt, but now he's the guy. He's clearly the guy, maybe more talented than all those other guys, but he's never had to be a leader on the defensive side of the ball. Now he's going to have to be that guy, and that's a different role for him. On offense, Stetson Bennett is back, so that, that should be an obvious answer there. But who are going to be those guys to step up outside of Stetson Bennett? You lose a guy like Jamari Sauer. You lose, you lose your top two running backs who are great leaders for this team. Who are those other players? It's going to be Kiaris Jackson. I think Kiaris is going to be an answer there. Is it going to be a guy like Warren McClendon entering essentially his third year as a starter at, at right tackle? I think we have the answers. I think we have options. But the problem is right now, I just don't know who those guys are going to be. And I guess it doesn't really matter if I know. It's just really truly matters what the team knows and who they look to. Just But do we have those guys? And I still think that's a question that we have to answer. And that's something that usually does resolve itself as you enter the summer months, as you go into fall camp. But again, I just think that's an underrated part of what makes a great team great, what makes an elite team elite. And I want to make sure we have those guys who step up and fill the void left by all those guys who filled those positions last year, but have now moved on to the NFL and the next step in their life. But all right, guys, that officially does it for me today here on the Glory UJ podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Always appreciate that. Curtis will be back with me later on this week as we get you guys ready for the NFL draft. 
We're going to be talking, obviously, just the Georgia-specific aspects of the NFL draft. We might touch on a few other guys here and there, but we're going to focus heavily on our guys that are going to hear their name called over the weekend, and we're going to have quite a few go in the first round. So we'll discuss all that leading into the NFL draft, so make sure to check back for that later on this week. I'm Tyler, and as always, Go dogs. <laughs>